How did social tensions play out in local villages of early modern England? What would happen if one person in a petty squabble became enraged by his cruel mind and deadly malice against his neighbors? We'll explore the consequences of gruesome criminal acts today on Footnoting History. Welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Leslie Skousen. Today, 9th of March, 2013, we will be discussing village disputes, social tension, violence, and revenge. Late at night on the 10th of September, 1553, Francis Conyers and John Spencer cornered Giles Rufford in a field in Huntfordshire, England. Francis raised his hand and stabbed Giles with a dagger in one hand and a javelin in the other. The pair then fled the field to meet with Roland, who was a tailor, who gave them 20 shillings for their deed and bid them to flee England for Flanders. Francis and John had no personal quarrel with Giles. Indeed, before they cornered him to kill him, the assassins had never met the victim. Instead, Francis and John were working for another man. Our story actually begins eight years before, in 1545. A minor dispute over land would ultimately lead to the murder of Giles Rufford. In summer of 1545, a new chaplain named Robert Rufford moved to Edelsborough, a small hamlet in Huntsfordshire. Robert was Giles' uncle. He took up the normal chaplain's residence and began to grow vegetables and fruits in the adjacent garden, as usual. After some time cultivating his small garden, Robert awoke one August night to the sounds in his yard. He peered out his window and watched in surprise as a gentleman neighbor, Bennett Smith, flew into a rage. Bennett pulled up the vegetables of the garden, ate whatever he could, and began to pile the rest in the center of the lawn. He plucked apples and pears from the fruit trees that circled the garden patch, and even ate the unripe fruits. Bennett then began hacking at the trees, building a large pile of refuse in the center of the garden. From there, Bennett moved on to the food shed, emptying it quickly and eating what he could. He finally broke into the barn and let out the horses and cattle to feast upon the pile. What would lead a veteran and a respected gentleman at that to act in such an absurd way? Robert Rufford filed a complaint the very next day. In it, he described the actions of Bennett Smith and asked for assistance from the authorities. As a poor chaplain, Robert Rufford's resources were slight and nothing compared to his wealthy neighbor. To this complaint, Bennett Smith responded that the land actually belonged to him that it was his right to leave the garden space fallow if he wished, and that Robert Rufford was the one who had enclosed his land legally. Perhaps a sensible person would have simply spoken to his neighbor for encroaching on his land, but Bennett Smith didn't work that way. Instead, he took stand in physical form. We see elements of his future actions in the night of rage-induced destruction. By 1553, Bennett Smith began to target Giles, the nephew. The story began with an accusation of theft, stealing a cloak and velvet purse containing the large sum of 16 pounds. Giles was put on trial for this theft, but the case was ultimately dismissed for lack of evidence. Bennett Smith did not accept this very well. He responded by repeating the accusation in a next-door county, and once again, the case against Giles was dropped and Bennett lost his temper. In public, he spoke slanderous and seditious words against Giles, Giles's character, and the entire Rufford family. In early modern England, this was a crime. Pre-modern societies were built upon the relationships and reputations of individuals. Degrading a reputation publicly and without cause threatened to undo the reliability of that social structure. Giles could not allow his name to be undervalued. He brought a suit of slander against Bennett, and he won. So far, Bennett had charged Giles twice of theft and lost both times. Giles, on the other hand, had charged Bennett with slander, and he had won. Bennett could not be deterred. In August of 1553, he brought yet another charge against Giles, but this time he upgraded the charge to felonious robbery. 
This meant that Bennett was alleging that Giles had assaulted his person while stealing the aforementioned goods, putting Bennett in fear of his life. Giles responded to this third charge by countersuing for conspiracy and harassment. Perhaps Giles felt confident after the successful suit of slander. Perhaps the court agreed. The third case against Giles was ultimately dismissed, just as the previous cases had been. However, Bennett Smith was convicted of the countersuit of conspiracy. The court ordered him to pay a hundred pounds, three times, maybe even four times, the amount Bennett had accused Giles of stealing in the first place. Unsurprisingly, this final development was too much for Bennett Smith to bear. He decided to give up on legal procedure. He sent his servant, John Godfrey, to London to hire two men who would be willing to commit murder for hire. Records indicate that John Godfrey knew Francis Conyers and John Spencer, the future murderers. At any rate, legal records from 1554 and Winchester tied the three names together. We can only speculate that they were indeed the same people, but no other such names exist in any other legal record. For the price of 40 shillings and a valuable ring, Conyers and Spencer agreed to the task. They stalked Giles for days and finally killed him and left him to die alone in the fields of Huntfordshire. Upon fleeing England for Flanners, authorities picked up the pair, who quickly confessed to the crime and their position taking direction from Bennett Smith. Within a day, Bennett was also arrested. And yet, the legal system encountered difficulty. Technically, Bennett had not physically harmed Giles. He did not stalk Giles across the countryside. He had not stabbed him or left him to die. Bennett Smith had not committed a crime. The court tried charging him with felonious conspiracy, and with that, Bennett Smith declared his intent to plead benefit of clergy, a sort of diplomatic immunity for priests that had been expanded during the recent Reformation to include any layman who could read. Smith might be convicted, but he would be released a free man. Rather than executed, this master of murder would be branded on the thumb and sent home. Upon hearing this within the courtroom, one attendee left immediately for London. Her name was Marjorie, and she was Giles Rufford's widow. She had known Bennett Smith for years, and well knew his temperament. She could not stand by, as the man responsible for her husband's gruesome death escaped all justice. And this is where the Rufford-Smith conflict becomes truly remarkable. Marjorie Rufford became a daily oratress, as she is described, in London, rallying people to her cause and letting the general public know about this affront to the English justice. She petitioned members of Parliament and sent letters to the Privy Council. She even petitioned Queen Mary for support. Her tireless efforts would be rewarded. In November of 1555, the Privy Council ordered that Bennett Smith's trial be suspended, and they placed him in the Tower of London. Then Parliament began to work for a solution, a way to punish a man for behaving terribly, but who had not technically broken any existing law. Their solution was to deprive Bennett Smith individually of his defense. They stripped him of benefit of clergy. The House of Commons proposed a bill entitled, specifically, an act to take away benefit of clergy from Bennett Smith for the murder of Rufford. In this law, they describe all of the events between Bennett and the Rufford family, decrying Bennett as a man of cruel mind and deadly malice. To my knowledge, this is the only public act that has ever been used in Parliament to punish a single individual. With widespread support and encouragement from the Privy Council, the bill was read three times in both houses, then quickly sent to Queen Mary for her assent. Once the bill had been passed, Henry Bedingfield, the Lord of the Tower of London, returned Bennett Smith to stand trial in his home county. Without a defense, Smith was convicted of felonious conspiracy. His hired goons were allowed to stay alive long enough that they might testify against him. Then all three men were hanged in March of 1556. What does this tell us about social relationships in Tudor England? Well, for one, the weakness of the law was not enough to destroy a community's sense of justice. And by granting judges mercy and discretion, the system could work to ensure that justice was served, even at extra-legal steps. 
and yet the drastic actions taken by Parliament are extreme and unparalleled. The closest similar action of emergency legislation occurred in 1531, when a man was found guilty of murder by poison and retroactively punished to the gruesome execution of being boiled to death. Even then, though, it was the act and not the man who was criminalized. So why was Bennett Smith so different? Perhaps his claims seemed to overturn the pride of English common law, which emphasized local judicious decisions and discreet application of mercy when warranted. By taking advantage of that mercy and demanding it rather than begging for it, Bennett Smith threatened to challenge the very nature of English justice. The role of the woman in this century cannot be denied either. Despite common ideas of womanhood at the time as weak and feeble, Marjorie Rufford is one of innumerable examples of strong-willed, powerful Tudor women who were able to campaign for their causes and command widespread respect. At the next session of Parliament, in fact, the actions of her husband's enemies would be criminalized because of her response. After that law's passage in 1557, anyone found guilty of contracting criminals for a variety of crimes, particularly emphasizing murder. They would be considered the principal actor in the offense and would suffer execution. Overall, though, a lesson. Do not anger the old man in the corner lot of your neighborhood. You never know when he might break into your garden, eat your vegetables, and try to kill your nephew. Get off my lawn might be a serious warning. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.